You're listening to Bible Truth Feed, a podcast by Christadelphianvideo.org for Christadelphians and all those seeking the truth about the Bible message. Join us now as we present our latest episode. The Lord's Introductory Speech. Luke chapter 22, commencing at verse 1 through to verse 18. Good evening, my dear brothers and sisters in our Lord Jesus Christ. Well, that's the same reading as we had last time, brothers and sisters, you will note. And uh, it was my intention to move on to the matter of washing the disciples' feet. But I did have a bit of this section left. And when I reviewed that during the week, I realised that there's a little bit more material there than I anticipated. And so we're going to deal very slowly with those verses 14 to 18 in particular, because we did get up to verse 14 at our last class. We want to just have a look now at this little introductory speech which the Lord made before they got down to the serious matter of the Last Supper. Not that his speech, of course, was not serious. It was very serious. Serious enough to know that in verse 14 it says, When the hour was come. Now we know that in John chapter 13, and we want to have a look at that for a moment. We did say a little bit about this. But just turn to John chapter 13. And John makes that same point, that when the hour was come... And we just reviewed that briefly last time. And in the 13th chapter of John, which is, of course, the companion record here in John's Gospel, we read in verse 1, Now before the feast of the Passover, that is, before the Jewish Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour was come. And we mentioned, brothers and sisters, that his uppermost thought was that he was to go to the Father. It wasn't the, the uppermost thought that was in his mind was not all the suffering, all the shame. He knew that if he thought about that, that would be the last thing in the world he wanted to think about. He wanted to think past that. He was going to depart and go to the Father. What a magnificent concept that was to him. And that caused him to think about those who were going to be left in this world. And so John makes the point, having loved his own which were in the world, he loved them unto the end. Now in John chapter 17, I think we quoted this before, but just reviewing this again as an introduction, because he knew that these were going to be left in the world, he was very much cognizant of them. And so in the 17th chapter of John and verses 12 to 15, we read these words. Praying to his father, he said, Whilst I was with them in the world, I kept them in thy name. Those that thou gavest me I have kept, and none of them is lost, but the son of perdition, that the scripture might be fulfilled. And now I come to thee, and these things I speak in the world, that they might have my joy fulfilled in themselves. I have given them thy word, and the world hath hated them, because they are not of the world, even as I am not of the world. I pray not that thou shouldest take them out of the world, but that thou shouldest keep them from the evil. And so there was a very, very wonderful, a very intense prayer to his father for people who were going to be left behind. What a wonderful mind, brothers and sisters, at a time of crisis, when many of us, of course, if we were called upon to make any sort of sacrifice with the truth, our, our thoughts would be how we would gather the brothers and sisters together that they might console us. And yet this man is facing this ordeal and he's there thinking about the way in which he can console them and pray to the Father that whilst he is coming to the Father, they are not. Now John says 
having loved his own. Now, who are his own? Well, they are those in the prayer of John 17. He says, all those which the Father hath given him. The Father gave him them. They were his own because they belonged to the Father, they belonged to the Son. But you know, brothers and sisters, in John chapter 1, there were another class that he called his own, but they're no longer his own. These are no longer his own. We read of the introduction of John's Gospel, chapter 1 and verse 10, He was in the world, and the world was made by him, and the world knew him not. He came unto his own, and his own received him not. So they're no longer his own. But they were his own, weren't they? He was sent to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. They were his own, because they were the fathers. But they didn't want him, brothers and sisters. They rejected him. And now the Lord is going to pray for his own, and they're not them. They're the ones out of that nation that God has given to him because of their attachment to him, because of his teaching. The others rejected that tremendous privilege and they were no longer his own. And neither will we be, brothers and sisters, if we neglect the privileges that God has given to us. There's not a brother and sister here that hasn't been baptised, that hasn't been called of God. There's no doubt about that. Whatever our circumstances might have been, whether we come out of the world, or whether we grew up in the Sunday school, we're called of God. All those circumstances about us were providential. And we've been given the privilege to become his own. Never let us refuse him like they did. Because that's not who he's praying for now. He's praying for those of whom the Father hath given him out of the world. Now coming back to Luke chapter 22, we read in verse 14, And when the hour was come, he sat down. Now the Greek text, brothers and sisters, means he, decli- he reclined. He, he reclined. They just didn't sit sort of in an upright chair. They sat or they reclined in a comfortable position uh, that gave opportunity for very intimate, close, personal contact with one another and that they might talk seriously about the issues of life. That wasn't indolent, it wasn't lazy, it wasn't a reclining down as if you were sort of uncomfortable or you just wanted to sprawl around. That wasn't the point at all. The point was that the Lord was drawing these men around him and he was going to get into a situation and they did too where they reclined on these couches preparing for a very personal discussion about the issues of life. So Rotherham has, he reclined. That's what he did. And you think, well, it's all right, that's the custom. But you just think, brothers and sisters, he's there and he's there 24 hours before the Jewish Passover. And you think back to Exodus chapter 12. They didn't do that in Egypt, did they? Because you see, not only was the Passover uh, a sort of, well, it was typical of the Lord Jesus Christ. There's no question of that. But there was great contrast, you see. This is the great salvation we're talking about here. Now in Egypt, you stood up. And not only did you just stand up, but you ate the feast with great haste and anxiety. Ready to move at an instant's notice. Now, we know that has its moral teaching. We know that. But there's a great contrast here. This didn't happen. The Lord reclines. Now, what's the difference? You look at Isaiah 52. Look what it says here, commenting upon that difference. Here's the great salvation that God is bringing through the Lord Jesus Christ. 
So in Isaiah 52 and, and verses 9 and 10, it says, Break forth into joy, sing together, ye waste places of Jerusalem. For Yahweh hath comforted his people, he hath redeemed Jerusalem. Yahweh hath made bare his holy arm in the eyes of all the nations, and all the ends of the earth shall see the salvation of our God. Now this is greater than Exodus, brothers and sisters. This is God's holy arm, his holy arm, his separate arm. And chapter 53 and verse 1 says, Who hath believed our report, and to whom is the arm of the Lord or of Yahweh revealed? Who is it? Well, there's no question who Isaiah 53 is. So the holy arm of Yahweh is this one in chapter 53. It's the Lord Jesus Christ. And the whole world is going to see the salvation of God. It's going to be so much greater than the Exodus. So verse 11 is an exhortation to you and I, to people of all generations. Depart ye, depart ye, go ye out from thence, touch no unclean thing. Go ye out of the midst of her, be ye clean that bear the vessels of Yahweh. Get out of the world, get out of Egypt is the call. Because the arm of Yahweh is to be revealed for the salvation of men and women. And then it says, for ye shall not go out with haste, nor go by flight, for Yahweh will go before you and the God of Israel will be your rear reward. Now what happened in Egypt? They went out with haste. And the people, brothers and sisters, went out unprepared. We know that because Ezekiel says that. In the 20th chapter of Ezekiel, he said that the people did not believe at that point. They refused to let go of their idolatry of Egypt and they did not depart, depart and touch not the unclean thing because they still refused to, still refused to, to leave those idols behind. And it wasn't until the, they came to the sea and the sea split that the apostle says, by faith they crossed the Red Sea. It wasn't until then uh, that they had any sort of faith in God. And they went out with haste. They went out, with, they went out unprepared for that. And there was a disaster in the wilderness, wasn't there? Well, here there's a Lord reclining. Here's the holy arm of Yahweh revealed. And the day is going to come when the whole world will see the great salvation of our God. And the exhortation for us, brothers and sisters, is to get ready to get out. But don't go with such haste in the things of life that we're unprepared for what's coming. And that's why the Lord sat there and said, I have a great desire to do this with you. And what's happened with us? How many years have you been in the truth? Some have been recently baptised. There are members here, I suppose, getting on to 50 and 60 years in the truth. And in all those years that those members have lived, brothers and sisters, there's opportunity. They've come here Sunday morning by Sunday morning with a careful, careful preparation for the great day when Yahweh will deliver us out of this world as he delivered Israel out of Egypt. But we won't go out unprepared, will we? There won't be any half-hearted attitudes, will there, brothers and sisters? There won't be lack of understanding of the greatness of Yahweh's salvation. Because if there is, it's our fault, because we've been ample opportunity. And when those disciples left that upper room, finally to go to the Mount of Olives, if they were unprepared, and they were in a sense unprepared, they had only themselves to blame. Because he reclined there, brothers and sisters, and told them, as John's Gospel, chapter 13, 14, 15, 16 and 17. All of that was told those disciples in the upper room and between the upper room and the Mount of Olives. They should never have been unprepared. 
And so he reclined. And this is the great salvation, isn't it? And the God of Israel was going to go before us and come behind us, as he did in those days. But now in a greater sense, brothers and sisters, we're going to be encompassed by the power of Almighty God through the salvation in his Son. And if we're unprepared, it is our fault because we've been given every opportunity to sit here in a comfortable situation and listen intently to what the Lord is telling us. We ought to listen and hear what he says. Now Luke says, and the twelve apostles with him. Twelve apostles with him. Now we don't know how they were sat at the table. I would assume that, of course, we know where John was. It says uh, he, was, uh, he was the one on whose head he, he, uh, his head he lay on the, on the Lord's bosom. So he was able to recline and to put his head just on the Lord's shoulder, right under his ear. And as John lay there with his ear right under the Lord's mouth, rather, and he would have heard every word that come from that mouth. That's why you get John 13, 14, 15, 16 and 17. Incredible recollection of what the Lord said, brothers and sisters, in detail. Sentence after sentence, profound import after profound import because that ear was right under the mouth of the Lord. So John sat there listening to him and hearing every word. Peter was obviously next to John or if not directly opposite him so that they could commune with each other secretly and others might not know about it. So he had to be near to John. And how the rest were, we don't know. But I want you to look at Leviticus 24, brothers and sisters, because they're going to partake of bread. And we're going to deal with the bread, not tonight, but at another night. We're going to deal with the wine tonight, in, in, in essence. But in Leviticus 24, I believe there is a suggestion as to how that table was set. And it's dealing here with, of course, the showbread. Now, we're going to have a, a, quite a lot to say about this much later in Luke 24 on the road to Emmaus. We're going to talk about this one here because it has a lot to do with those two disciples on the way to Emmaus. But for the moment, just let's look at this. So we're told in verse 5 of Leviticus 24, And thou shalt take fine flour and bake twelve cakes thereof, two tenths deal shall be in one cake, and thou shalt set them in two rows, six on a row, upon a pure table before Yahweh. And thou shalt put pure frankincense upon each row, that it may be for a bread of memorial even an offering made by fire unto Yahweh. So there was the showbread, six in a row, on a pure table before Yahweh. The incense of prayer was there, and it says it was a bread for memorial. And in the Greek, when Jesus said, do this in remembrance of me, the Greek is, do this as a memorial of me. That's clearly a reference to that point of scripture. Because there he is in the presence of the showbread, six in a row, before the Lord in a pure table. And I believe that's probably how they were set. Six down either side, and the Lord at the head of the table, and the table was pure because the Lord was there. His presence, brothers and sisters, brought a sanctity and a purity about the whole of that feast as they listened to him. Because there was a man who was the Word made flesh. Oh yes, some time to go yet before he had perfected righteousness. We know that. But at every point of his life, that man was perfect. To the point that God had expected it of him. And there he was before them and the table was pure by his presence. 
and they were to listen to the voice of the Son of God. This is God's voice they're listening to. The manifestation of the Father is talking to them. What a wonderful occasion. And so I believe there's a, there's a hint there as to how that table would have been set. Now Luke says his opening words were, with desire, I have desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. First thing we want to notice is it's this Passover. In other words, it's, it's a contrast to, to the ordinary Jewish Passover which is to follow some 20 odd hours later. It's the first thing we want to notice. Because it was at that time, brothers and sisters, that he must suffer death at the time of the sacrifice of the Passover lamb that all might be fulfilled which was written in the law. Now he says, I want to do something before that. Before that happens. And brothers and sisters, he not only wanted to do it, but he uses a Hebraism. With desire I have desired. You know, that's a similar Hebrew expression, they say, as eating thou shalt eat. To give intensity to the whole thing. There's an intensity about it. So he has a great desire and he's desirous of doing this. And there's a very great intensity, they say, about that Greek expression here, which is just like a, a Hebrew expression of intensity, where a thing is said like that twice. And not only that, brothers and sisters, but this word, desire, is a very strong word. It's a word which speaks of very strong emotional feelings. As a matter of fact, in the negative sense, and it's got, this has got nothing to do with the Lord's feelings, but that same Greek word in the, in the negative sense is talked about the lust of the flesh, concupiscence which leads men astray with their burning passions to do evil. Well, this man has a burning passion to sit there with his disciples that they might do right. That's what he's got. He knows, brothers and sisters, he knows what's ahead. And you know, you just ask yourself the question, why is it so necessary to come Sunday morning by Sunday morning? We ought to know that without even asking the question. We, not, we don't say because the statement of faith or the commandments of Christ only say that it's necessary. That's what it's written in print. We ought to know in here that it's necessary. We didn't have to, ought to have to be told, brothers and sisters, that it's necessary to come to a memorial meeting. Don't you feel the need for that? We ought to have a burning desire to be here because he did and because his desire was that we should be prepared and our desire is because we need preparing. We need the, the reconstruction of our faith to the, re the reviewing of the last week and the determination to overcome our weaknesses and to feel a oneness with our Lord and with his brothers and sisters as we sit in the meeting and to go away, brothers and sisters, ready to face another week. That is a tremendous need. And Jesus said, I have a tremendous desire. I really want this opportunity to talk to you people about these things before I suffer. And that would have been a strange comment in that room what that would have meant would have been lost on them, although they've been told that many times. But that still was lost on them. You can't understand that. You know, we say, here were people who wrote some of the epistles that takes us a year or more to study. So they weren't unintelligent. Why could they not see that? It was their upbringing, brothers and sisters. It was their traditional upbringing, not only in their own lifetime but that which had preceded them for hundreds of years, the way they were taught by the rabbis, the clinical, mechanical way in which the law was interpreted as jot and tittle, as just simply this or that, of clean or unclean, 
and they, their minds were very regimented and very stilted in the way that they thought. And to talk about a Messiah, suffering was as foreign to them as anything. They couldn't grasp those, those thoughts and those ideals at all. Why, even the parables the Lord said were given that people might see and not hear and not see and hear and not hear. And yet to us they're very simple. But when you've got a, you've got a cast of thinking that's been rigidly cast in a, in a, in a, in a stilted way through the, through the mechanics of law, that mind is very difficult to get out of that cast into the realms, brothers and sisters, of spiritual profundity. And until that came... Uh, they found that would have been a very strange comment before I suffer. And he went on to say this in verse 16. He says, For I say unto you, I will not any more eat thereof until it be fulfilled in the kingdom of God. Fulfilled in the kingdom of God. Now you imagine them sitting around that table with the mind that I've just described. What was in their mind? He's the Messiah. No man could do these miracles except God be with him. Even the Pharisees had said that. He must be the Messiah. Look at the things he taught us from the scripture. Some of them they didn't understand, but some they did. Never man spake like this man. So, he, A, he's the Messiah. Now, their concept of Messiah was, there's no way he can suffer. There's no way the Messiah could suffer an indignity at all. Or talk about any pain, it's just ridiculous. And they saw him as the conqueror ridding their land of the Romans and setting up the kingdom of Israel. And he told them that they're going to be sitting upon 12 thrones judging the 12 tribes of Israel. Now if you were sitting there listening to him and knowing that in 20 hours, a little bit more or less perhaps, but around about 20 hours time, he would have to drink wine four times in the Jewish Passover and he said to you, I will not drink this until it be fulfilled in the kingdom of God. Immediately in their minds was, within one day we're going to be in God's kingdom. Now look at verse 24. And there was also a strife among them which of them should be accounted the greatest. You see what would have been sparked off in their minds by a completely wrong conception of what they had of the Lord. Not ever thinking that he could go through suffering. And here they you'd imagine the ripple of excitement went around the room within, within a day. The kingdom of God is here because they knew that he'd have to drink wine in the Jewish Passover. And to them they thought that's why he's called this feast. That's why it's called because in a few hours time we're on the way to glory sitting upon 12 thrones judging the 12 tribes of Israel. Now I wonder which one of us will have the most important tribe. And around that table, brothers and sisters, there was a strife among them as who should be the greatest. One of the most common forms, isn't it, of temptation, the pride of life. Dreadful thing, really, is the pride of life. And there are many of us who think that the other person's very proud. And they probably are, because we're all proud. And depending upon what our work is in the ecclesia, brothers and sisters, I suppose depends upon the degree of, of praise we get from our, from our fellow man. And, and it can carry us away. And we can imagine, we can imagine that perhaps we might be better than somebody else in the kingdom of God. Well, you may not believe this, but I've got no such thoughts in my mind because I'm too well aware, brothers and sisters, of my own personal failings. I am. I don't care whether you believe me or not. That's a fact. And that's what we all ought to be aware of. And come here not thinking about who's going to be the greatest, 
But thinking to ourselves, we have the greatest need for help. We have a very great need for help. And so that's what the mind was around that table at the time when the Lord has a passionate desire to talk to them about the issues of life. Now verse 17 says this, And he took the cup. Now what was that cup? It wasn't the last time he took it. Verse 20, Likewise also the cup after supper, saying. Now there we've got clear evidence that he at least took two cups of wine. Jewish tradition had it that it was always red wine and it was mingled with water. It was not strong. They diluted it with water. But brothers and sisters, in the Jewish traditional observance, and I believe that the Lord kept a form of that, because not all their traditions were bad. They were not all bad. And some of their interpretations of the law were excellent. And the traditional observance of the, of the Passover went like this. Now this is an abbreviated form of it. There was much more detailed than this. But it might help to understand why Luke's mentioning two cups when there actually was four in the Jewish observance. You see, point number one, there was a preliminary feast, which we're looking at now, commencing with the head of the company giving thanks for the first cup of wine. And that's what we're reading, I believe, here in Luke 22. So the head of the feast, which in this case was the Lord Jesus Christ, gave thanks for the first cup of wine and then further prayers were said. Then they had herbs dipped in salt water and handed around. And then the second cup was now filled at that point. It wasn't drank at that point. After they'd filled the second cup, the eldest son would ask questions which his father would give the answers. You know, from Exodus 13 where they were told that from generation to generation their children were to ask questions as what meaneth this to you, to quote the Hebrew. So they weren't asking their mothers or their fathers what it meant. They asked their father what it meant to him. That's how the Hebrew has it. Imagine your son asking you, Dad, what does the truth mean to you? And the answer they gave, of course, if you read Exodus carefully, very clearly. The answer they gave was to tell their boys that they were hopeless and helpless at the mercy of Egypt and they could find no way out of it and that unless God had come and taken them out of Egypt they would have perished. And the little boy looking at his dad who he would see as his idol of solidarity and strength and courage and faith he would think, whoa, my dad being helpless and hopeless and needing God, what would that do to that little boy? It would impress him with the need, wouldn't it? Well, that was the question that was asked after the second cup was filled. Then the Passover feast was set up and the explanation was given to every item of the feast. The head of the company would then explain the meaning of every item of that feast. And this, by the way, is a very abbreviated form, which I've got out of Edersheim's book, who is, is evidently the expert on these Jewish customs. Point number six, the first part of the Hallel was sung. Hallel means praise. Hallelujah. Praise ye Yahweh. And the the Hallel went from Psalm 113 to Psalm 118. So at that point of the feast, they sung Psalms 113 to 114 and then they drank of the second cup. After that, one unleavened cake was broken and distributed after giving of thanks. And then followed pieces of bread dipped in karashes. Now that is a, a fruit sauce. 
It's a compound of dates and, and raisins and so forth mixed up together with certain spices. Uh, make, it's not the bitter herbs. It's a, it's a fruit sauce. And, and these pieces of bread were dipped in that fruit sauce and handed around. And that was known as the sop. And it was that, brothers and sisters, which signalled the beginning of the Passover feast proper. That was the signal of it. And when Jesus dipped that little bit of bread as the sop and he gave it to Judas Iscariot, signalling the start of that feast. Think about that. In the same night in which he was betrayed, he took bread. And so that's what happened at that point. Then the Passover meal was now eaten. Now the third cup was now drunk. And that cup was known in the Jewish traditions as the cup of blessing. That's the one in verse 20. Likewise also the cup after supper. You see, the Passover meal was eaten and now the third cup of wine is partaken of and that is the one that is known as the cup of blessing. Now let's have a look at this in 1 Corinthians 10. And here Paul uses the expression that the Jews gave to that cup which of course is taken from Psalm 116 anyway, which we'll have a look at in some other study when we get to the third cup. But in the first Corinthians chapter 10 and verse 16, Paul calls it the cup of blessing which we bless. Is it not the communion or participation of the blood of Christ? So there it is. Now when was that partaken of? Well, turn over to first Corinthians 11 and in verse 25, after the same manner also he took the cup when he had supped. That's exactly what that tradition says. And that's, that's what Luke says, doesn't he? When supper was ended. So Paul says in verse 25 again, after the same manner also he took the cup when he had supped, saying, this is the cup of the new covenant in my blood. This do ye as often as ye drink it as a memorial of me. And that would have been done, brothers and sisters, at the end of the feast, and that was the cup of blessing. 1 Corinthians 10 says that and 1 Corinthians 11 says it came after supper and that's what Luke chapter 22 and verse 20 says. Likewise also the cup after supper. Why was it called the cup of blessing? Because having eaten of the Passover meal, the president of that meal would offer a very special blessing at that point. Naturally it would come at that point. Having Ingested the ingested the the Passover lamb, symbol of the of the of the Messiah, of the Christ, taken it into their own being. And then the president would point out to them the marvellous blessings that accrue to people who do that. And that's why it was called the cup of blessing. And we come, brothers and sisters, every Sunday morning to take him into our lives. And he's about to make that point himself in Luke chapter twenty two. And just have a look what he says. In Luke 22 and in verse 17. Now this is not the cup of blessing. This is the initial cup signalling the significance of the wine. And he took the cup and he gave thanks and said, take this and divide it among yourselves. Take this and divide it among yourselves. Now, the word for divide, brothers and sisters, is to partition thoroughly or, as we would say, in plain, unmistakable language, to share it. Now, I wouldn't know of a better way, really, 
to impress upon all of us the significance of the wine than to say it like that. But that wine was a symbol of his life and we share it. Now I want to come back to that in a moment but I want to establish in your minds, brothers and sisters, very clearly the significance of blood. Now it's most essential we understand this. Approaching the Last Supper without some comprehension of the significance of the things of the law, particularly, is very much to miss the point. Here were people who were brought up as children from childhood under the law of Moses, whose understanding of his detail was quite incredible, though they may not have understood the profound principles at this point. Their understanding of that law was incredible. It was a wonderful school teacher bringing them to the Lord Jesus Christ. We want to have a very good look, brothers and sisters, at the significance of blood. But first of all, we need to understand that wine is a symbol of his blood. Now, you might think, well, this is so simple and so logical, but let, let's, not, let's not forget it, that wine is a symbol of his blood. Didn't Paul say that? The cup of blessing which we bless, is it not the participation in the blood of Christ? So he saw the wine as a symbol of his blood. Okay? But that's only another symbol was still not got to the point of what it was really symbolical of. We've got wine, which is a symbol. It's a symbol of his blood. But blood is a symbol, brothers and sisters, isn't it? John chapter 6. Now here's the explanation of the symbology of blood. John 6, verse 53 and 54. Then Jesus said unto them, Truly, truly, I say unto you, Except ye eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoso eateth my flesh and drinketh my blood hath eternal life and I will raise him up at the last day. So, okay, Paul says the cup of blessing, is it not the participation of the blood of Christ? Here's John recording the words of the Lord where he says, And except ye drink the blood of the Son of Man, you've got no life in you. So blood, wine, becomes a symbol of life. Very simple, isn't it? You say, well, yeah, that's okay, that's very simple. What sort of life? And you know, brothers and sisters, around that question there have been much discussion. And there's two schools of opinion. That blood is a symbol of the life of the flesh, in the negative, and so, no, 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 it's not that at all. Blood is a symbol of a dedicated life. Now, the truth of the matter is that they're both right. There's no question of that. It depends upon the context in which that blood is found. They're both right. So, blood has a symbolic sense of being negative and the symbolic sense of being positive. It can talk about the life of flesh and it can talk about the life that comes from God. It depends on the context and where you find that blood. Now let me prove that point. In, this is a most fundamental reference in Leviticus 17. If you want to know anything about blood, it's here. It's a fundamental reference in the law of Moses for the understanding of the symbology of blood. Now remember what Jesus said. He said, except ye drink the blood of the Son of Man. Now to a Jew that would be abhorrent to the nth degree. He would be outraged at that comment because he was taught under the law of Moses never to eat blood. Never. 
And here's a man saying, except you drink the blood of the Son of Man, except you do it, you've got no life in you. And the Jew would say, hey, that's not what the law of Moses told me, didn't it? Well, you look what the law said. Now, here's blood in both its significance. Let's take Leviticus chapter 17 from verses 10 and 11. Now, let's read it carefully together. And whatsoever man there be of the house of Israel or of the strangers that sojourn among you that eateth any manner of blood, I will even set my face against that soul that eateth blood and will cut him off from among his people. And here comes the reason. For the life of the flesh is in the blood. And I have given it to you upon the altar to make an atonement for your souls. For it is the blood that maketh an atonement for the soul. Or as the RSB renders that last sentence, for it is the blood that maketh an atonement by reason of the life. I'm going to read verse 11 again. I want you to notice every word of it. This is the reason, the first reason they were never to eat blood. For the life of the flesh is in the blood and I have given it to you upon the altar to make an atonement for your souls. Now the blood he's talking about there, brothers and sisters, if you go back in the context, is the blood of sacrificial animals. Sheep and the goats, and the bullock, and the ram, and so forth. He's talking about that blood. Now, having read that carefully, let's read the next time he tells them they weren't to eat blood, in verse 13. Verse 12 we go back to, Therefore I said unto the children of Israel, No soul of you shall eat blood, neither shall any stranger that sojourneth among you eat blood. And whatsoever man there be of the children of Israel, or of the strangers that sojourn among you, which hunteth and catcheth any beast or fowl that may be eaten. Now let's pause there. What's he talking about? He's talking about wild game. Like the roebuck and the hart, the wild deer out there. They're clean animals. They chewed the cud. They clothed the hoof. But they were not domestic animals. Therefore they were non-sacrificial. They weren't unclean animals, but they were non-sacrificial animals. They could be eaten because they were clean animals as far as that was concerned, but they were not sacrificial animals and they were hunted and caught by man. We'll read it again. Which hunteth and catcheth any beast or fowl that may be eaten, he shall even pour out the blood thereof and cover it with dust. For it is the life of all flesh. The blood of it is for the life thereof. Therefore I said unto the children of Israel, ye shall eat the blood of no manner of flesh, for the life of all flesh is in the blood thereof. Whosoever eateth it shall be cut off. And every soul that eateth that which dieth of itself, or that which is torn with beasts, whether it be one of your own country or a stranger, he shall both wash his clothes and bathe his flesh in water, and shall be unclean until the even, and then shall he be clean. So even in verse 15, when an animal had suffered death by any other means than sacrifice, to eat that or eat the blood of it, he would be unclean. Now I want to show you the contrast. Now brothers and sisters, please, I never invented this contrast. It's there. Now look at the significance of blood. Life which is in the blood. 
You've got sacrificial animals and you've got non-sacrificial animals. The sacrificial animals is the life of the flesh and the non-sacrificial animals is the life of all flesh. The blood was given by God in the first case. In the second case it was hunted and caught by man. God put that blood upon the altar. The other one was covered in the dust. The, the sacrifice—it's as clear as anything, isn't it? You come down the bottom. What was the first one here? Actually, I've got those wrong. I've got to, you should bring them over. I've made a mistake. You should put that quote over there and that quote over there. So we look at this one here. Peter talks about the precious blood of Christ. What's that? Precious. It means there's a life that was lived on this earth, brothers and sisters, that nobody else ever lived. And that's the life God says was of the flesh. He came as the Son of Man in our nature with all its uncleanness, with all its propensities to sin, with all its temptations and never succumbed to it. He presented God with a life that was perfect as the representative of, of, the, of, the, of the world. And that blood was given by God. That life came from God. He was born of a virgin, came of his father. And it was because of the fatherhood of God that that man was able to, to bring forth moral perfection upon the, upon the earth. And God gave that upon the altar. That's why children of Israel couldn't eat it, could they? They couldn't eat of that, of that life, not because it's impossible to eat it, but God was reserving it. He was keeping it for himself. I want that, he says, to give it to you upon the altar. And when the man came... But that blood symbolised, when he came, he said, except ye drink the blood of the Son of Man, you've got no life in you. Here it is. This is what God has been reserving for history. And here's history now fulfilled, and the Lord comes as the manifestation of that life, and it was that life, brothers and sisters, that made atonement. For, says the Apostle, if Christ be not raised, we're yet in our sins. And he was raised from the dead, the power of his resurrection, brothers and sisters, the power of his resurrection was made possible by the holiness of his life. And unless that life had been lived, the only acceptable life before God, except someone had come and given to God that which God's law demanded, then nobody would be saved. And so that the life makes atonement because it's a perfect life. It's like saying, and we all agree with this, that no sacrifice under the law would be acceptable if it was blemished. Neither would the Lord's sacrifice be acceptable, brothers and sisters, if he'd been in any sense immoral, because he wasn't. But when we look on the other side of the ledger, we need to put that thing over. I'm very sorry that's happened. We need to put the other quotation over here. The life of all flesh is the one that John speaks about. Not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh. And so when we're talking about blood being a symbol, brothers and sisters... And we talk about being a symbol of life. If we're talking about your life and my life, we're talking about the will of the flesh. Things which we want to do. Which if we chose to do, we'd drink our own life, we'd live our own life, we, we would please ourselves. We wouldn't care about what the law of God said or what God's commandments were or what the principles of truth. We wouldn't care less because we want to do our own thing. Not of blood, not of the will of the flesh. That's that blood. But when we're talking about his life, we're talking about a unique life. And it's that unique life, brothers and sisters, so unique that God was able to make atonement with it. And that's the whole point of it. Leviticus 17, I believe, is the, is the key to the symbolism of blood. 
We need to understand that. So that when we come to references about blood, depending upon their context, whether it's negative or positive. Now there's no way known that the offer of the Lord's, that wine of the Lord, when he spoke about his blood, there's no way he could ever understand the negative because he said, except he drink this, you've got no life in you. And it wasn't Jesus the man, brothers and sisters, that saved us. He was there as our representative. In his own body he bore our sins to demonstrate before all men that flesh profits nothing. Nothing whatever. He was there as the Son of God to show us an example, brothers and sisters, the way that we should live. The way that we should live. When he put out that first cup, he said, you take that and share this among yourselves. I don't believe that there's any teaching in the Bible greater to impel us upon a course of obedience to God than the example of his son. Do you? What other life is there that we could take, brothers and sisters, and share it among ourselves? We can take the examples of brethren in the past and we can say they were wonderful men, Brother Thomas, Brother Roberts, and those who followed them. And we do take them as examples. But it's not their life that's going to save us. It can help us immensely. can't save us. The life that's going to save us, brothers and sisters, is the life of the Son of God. And if we're running around this world doing our own thing and thinking that we can please ourselves, let us, let's understand this, that the rule of the judgment, well, there'll be only one rule of judgment, and it'll be Jesus Christ our Lord. It'll be him. For as much as you've done it unto the least of these, my brethren, you've done it to me, and he will be the measuring yard, brothers and sisters. Now, none of us are going to reach perfection. We don't want to get away despondent and think, well, how on earth can we match that example? Brothers and sisters, we're not going to match the perfect example. But I tell you what, if we don't try, there's no way known we're going to be in the kingdom of God. So when he said, you take this and divide it among yourself, share it among yourself, you imagine, are you trying to imagine with me what that would mean if every brother and sister of a Sunday morning really took that to heart? So what are we, what are we doing? So we, we get a, a, a jug of wine and the, the, the chairman might, or they before the meeting might prepare that, whatever the custom is, and they pour it into the little glasses or they may have a common cup. It doesn't matter. What really matters is that there's a fluid. There's a fluid there, brothers and sisters, wine. And to make up that wine, there were hundreds and hundreds and thousands of little grapes crushed together that their blood might be mingled. And we don't know in that fluid, we could never, ever, ever possibly identify which little grape provided what little globule of fluid. We wouldn't know because it's all mixed together. And when we partake of that, we're learning the lesson, aren't we? There's a wonderful life that's been lived and he's prepared to share that. If we're prepared to share it among ourselves... So I've got to learn and you've got to learn and I want to emphasise this because it's a tremendous import. It's a tremendous import of this. If you could, at the next memorial meeting, make this one of your projects in your mind to come here and think to yourself, it's not you just participating in the emblems and therefore absorbing into your life the principles of the Lord Jesus Christ of love and of mercy, of truth, of justice and everything else of holiness and of righteousness and cleanness, all those principles. It's not just simply that you've got to take it into your being. You've got to share that with everybody else. How do you do that? How could you possibly do that? Well, there's only one way you could do it. Only one way I could do it. And that act towards each other like Christ would act towards us. And the purpose of that 
is to show our brothers and sisters where we've come from, who it is that's affecting our life, in the hope that two things will be accomplished. That glory will be given to God and everybody will be directed to that table through all the brothers and sisters who live like him. It's a wonderful thing and so Christ is shared through the meeting. You say, well, in a practical sense, how could I do that? Where are you going to learn about the Lord Jesus Christ? There's only four. There's got Matthew, Mark, Luke and John. All right, the rest of the Bible is there. Here's the living Bible. He'll take you all over the Bible if you study his life. Hasn't that been the case in this class? And you study that record and you see what he did. Look what he did. Look what he said. Look how he thought. You think about it, brothers and sisters. Have you ever done that? Have you ever thought to yourself, when you really got down to that record and you read it for yourself and you, you look at that man and you read about him, what he actually did, and sometimes you think to yourself, you know, I'm not doing that. You're not taking that direction. Sometimes you think the outcome of things in your life are not the outcomes that he would have came to. And you've got to think again as to where you're going. And we need, brothers and sisters, therefore, to absorb that life and to understand that life. And when we've understood it, to share that among ourselves in order that everybody might participate in that action. And I believe it was a wonderful thing when the Lord put that out. He even asked Judas to do that. To share that life with the rest of his fellow disciples. Divide this among yourselves. What a wonderful thing that is. I just think that's so wonderful. And we went on to say in that 18th chapter of Luke, he went on to say this, He said, For I say unto you, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God shall come. Now, why did he change the expression to the fruit of the vine? Like it seems in other places, he, he talks about the symbol of wine and so forth, but or the cup, some, he mostly calls it, but here he calls it the fruit of the vine. Well, it's simple, isn't it? You see, if we've got his life symbolised before us, brothers and sisters, if we're not prepared to share that among ourselves now, what's going to happen when he sits down? He says, I'm not going to do this again. I won't do it again. I won't drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. Well, what's the fruit of the vine? Well, it's the fruit of the vine. It's that which the vine produces and it has its wonderful significance, doesn't it? You've got to bring forth fruit. Now, we know that in relation to anything. But here's the point, and this is the point that we're going to make now from Ezekiel 15 in a minute. Brethren and sisters, there is only one virtue of the vine. It has no other. That's to produce fruit. There are some fruit trees that you can actually cut down branches and make a stake or, or do something with them. What can you do with the vine? Now you look at Ezekiel 15. Have a look at it. And you see the significance of this. And it's very interesting that, you know, if you want to remember things and build your memory for the Bible, think of Ezekiel 15, John 15. Because they are companion records. And look what it says here. In Ezekiel 15, reading the first, first five verses. And the word of Yahweh came unto me, saying, Son of man, what is the vine tree more than any tree, or than a branch which is among the trees of the forest? In other words, what's the difference? Well, he says, Shall wood be taken thereof to do any work? 
Or will men take a pin of it to hang any vessel thereon? Would your brothers and sisters, what would you make out of the branch of a vine? What would you do with it? That's the question of Ezekiel. Son of man, what would you do with it? Could you do any work with it? The answer is no. Look at it. Twisted and just absolutely useless for anything. It wouldn't hold a nail in it when it went dry. Nothing. You couldn't do anything with it. Verse 4. Behold, he says, you put it in the fire. But the only useful thing is to burn it. The fire devours both ends of it. In other words, there's no part of it that's any good for use. And the midst is burned, so even the middle of it's no good. Is it meat for any work? Of course it's not. Behold, when it was whole, was it meat for any work? No. How much less shall it be meat yet for any work when the fire hath devoured it and is burned? So you see, what he's saying is, A, both ends of the wood and the middle of it are useless, and they're useless before they're burnt, and they're certainly useless after they're burnt, so he's emphasising the fact, brothers and sisters, that the vine has only one positive thing to do in its lifetime and that's to produce fruit. And Jesus said, you share my life among yourselves and I won't do this again until we sit down and share it together in the kingdom of God. Isn't that a tremendous exhortation? In other words, brothers and sisters, if we haven't shared his life here, there's no way we're going to be sharing it there. Because if there's no fruit brought forth to his name, then there's nothing. Now you look at John 15. Look at John 6. This is the exposition, I believe, not only of Ezekiel, Isaiah 27, Isaiah 28, Isaiah 5, but Ezekiel's in here also. And in John 15 he said this, I am the true vine and my father is the husbandman. Every branch in me that beareth not fruit he takes away and every branch that beareth fruit he purges it that it may bring forth more fruit. Now you are clean through the word which I have spoken unto you. Abide in me and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit of itself except it abide in the vine, no more can ye except ye abide in me. I am the vine, ye are the branches. He that abideth in me and I in him, the same bringeth forth much fruit. For without me, or the margin says, severed from me, cut off from me, you can do nothing. I will not partake of the fruit of the vine. Now if we are severed from Christ, brothers and sisters, and we haven't got any fruit, there's nothing to share in that kingdom. Because there just isn't anything in our life comparable to what he's been producing. Because we've been severed from him. And if we remain in the, in the, in the, in the, in the, in the vine, and we, and we still re- refuse to bring forth fruit, then we are useless. And what does the father do? The father is spending his time amongst the ecclesias through his son, brothers and sisters, pruning that vine. It's, it hurts. When you cut something, it hurts. And it really hurt. But God is interested in producing fruit in our life because he wants us to share that in the kingdom of God with the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, brothers and sisters, please understand me, what I'm saying. We've got to take this man into our lives and we've got then the absolute imperative duty to share that amongst each other. Now, you read what he did for other people and see whether you're doing that for other people. You just read what he did for other people and see whether that's what you and I are doing. Because that's the life we're supposed to be sharing.
It's very, very interesting to, to read that. You know, Isaiah talks about the fruit of their doings. And Galatians talks about the fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, peace and so forth. Now Jesus said he's not going to do that until the kingdom of God shall come. Now Matthew and Mark, in their gospel records recording that, add another word. They add the word new. When they say, he said, I will not drink this until I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. What's new? Well, the idea of the Hebrew word is not only, rather the Greek word is not only new, it's, it's the idea is freshness. There'll be a freshness about it. Well, if, if, the, if the wine was a symbol of the blood and the blood was a symbol of the life, look at the wine that's on that table, brothers and sisters. What sort of life is this? It's not just simply absorbing into our lives the, mora- the morality of the Son of God and the moral things he stood for. Now we're going to be around that table with immortal life. This is the new wine, isn't it? Isaiah 26, isn't it? Isn't this Isaiah 26? Look what he says. And Jesus said, I'm going to drink this new with you because the outcome of our lives in Christ will be eternal life. That's why Mark and Matthew add that word new. And so in Isaiah chapter 25, in verse 6, after speaking about the destruction of the terrible of the nations, the judgment upon great Babylon, it says in verse 6, And in this mountain shall Yahweh of armies make unto all people a feast of fat things, a feast of wines on the lees, of fat things full of marrow, of wines on the lees, well refined. Here is a wine, brothers and sisters, that have been allowed to mature. This is the top class. Wine, I don't know anything about wine, but I tell you what, there must be a science in wine. There has to be. There are a thousand variations of both red and white wines. Men uh, grow up to learn to be wine tasters. They can discern the most subtle differences. Areas around the world are noted that this area will produce this and this area will produce that. And some areas in the world can produce better wines than others. And you know what, brothers and sisters, I even heard on the radio once on on a current affairs bulletin of a fellow that was talking about wine making and he said that in Portugal, where they make wine, he said they'd still traditionally at the end of the harvest they have a ball where the women and men come and dance and they take their shoes and socks off and they tread out the wine in their dancing and he said, it is marginally better than the best wine that's made in the, in the vineyard. Marginally better. But he doesn't know why. So even that has its, has its contribution to the treading out of the grape, has its contribution in a marginal way to producing some more refinement with it. So what I'm saying is that here is Isaiah talking about wine that is the absolutely top class among great variations of it. And it says it's going to be in this mountain. Now what is that wine? Verse 7, he will destroy in this mountain the face of the covering cast over all people and the veil that is spread over all nations and he shall swallow up death in victory. Swallow up death in victory. And in the place of death, brothers and sisters, Paul quoting that in Corinthians says, in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, the dead shall be raised incorruptible, and he says, and we shall be changed. The very, very top class of life. I will drink it new with you. 
in my Father's kingdom. He will wipe away all tears from all faces and the rebuke of his people shall he take away from off all the earth for Yahweh has spoken it. End of the matter. Done, brothers and sisters. It's done. In this mountain it'll happen. We can be there. It's all over. God has said it. Now he says in verse 9, and it's we said in that day, lo, this is our God. We have waited for him and he will save us. Yahoshua. It's not Yahoshua there, but Yahoshua. Jesus means Yahweh will save. This is Yahweh. We have waited for him. We will be glad and rejoice in his salvation. And so on and so on. And so there, brothers and sisters, I believe, is the pictorial scene of that new feast when Jesus will come and share his life, a new life, immortal life, with all those who bring along to that feast the fruits of the Spirit produced from the vine to share it with him. Share it now, share a greater life then. That was the preliminary speech, brothers and sisters, to the Last Supper. And no greater preliminary speech could have been made than to outline to them all before they ever started anything that he wanted them to desperately know he was very, very strongly emotionally moved on this occasion to do this with them because he knew, brothers and sisters, that had precious little time in which to see him close up, to absorb the lessons of life and to see in that man all that was supreme in life. The way that he walked, the way that he lived, the things that he said and the things that he did and the way he spoke to people and how he encouraged them and how he exhorted them and how he corrected them. That's the man. And that's the life, brothers and sisters, that we need to take into ourselves. And when we get it in there, then let's learn to share it. Thank you for joining us. We hope you found the episode helpful. Don't forget, most of these episodes are also available as videos on our video channel, cdvideo.org. So head over and take a look. If you have any comments or questions or suggestions, please get in touch or leave us a voice message. We love to hear your feedback. You can email us at bt f at cdvideo.org If you enjoyed the episode, then please share it with others. Until next time, may God bless you in your studies and your walk towards God's kingdom. Amen.